Welcome back to The Coaching Bubble, where we explore all things coaching. I'm your host, Stephen Behan, and this show is for everyone, all coaches, all sports, from novice to elite, and we hope to leave you with some tips and advice from some of the most interesting people in the field. On today's show, which is the last in the series, we've none other than Paddy Butler. In GAA circles, Paddy needs no introduction. The former National Hurling Director is probably better known as a coach educator, as he's travelled the length and breadth of the country to countless schools and clubs. On the show, we get a greater understanding on the importance of the fundamental movement skills for all sports, a better understanding that there are steps of development for every skill and for every athlete, and we explore his philosophy on coaching, that the aim is to release the potential of the person. The show's a little bit longer than usual, but trust me, it's worth it. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. A huge welcome to you, Paddy. Delighted to have you on the show. Um, Your experience in coaching yourself is huge. But I think a lot of people around the country will know you as a coach educator in your time for as National Director of Hurling and beyond. But before we go into any of that, uh, I'd like to ask you a big open-ended question. What is coaching to you, Paddy? Um, well, at the deepest level, I think it's developing human potential. That uh, There's potential in everybody, no matter what we see on the outside. There's massive potential there. But very early on, um, children kind of get classified by adults and by their peers that they're good at something or not good at something and they might be only six or seven years of age and they're making decisions that they're not good at something and they could have massive potential in that area but that area is closing down in their minds and they kind of have made a judgment about themselves way before so to say that um, by second class 60% of children have decided they're not good at sport or 50% have decided they're not good at music. And they're only eight years of age. And they could be 48 before they realize that they, they would have been good at it. So um, people are inclined to say things, you know, in children's presence, that Paddy is a bit slow and Jenny is a bit too thin and Tommy is too, too weak or too tall or too fat or whatever. Children get condemned very young. So I think in our primary schools we have a massive opportunity there with good people, just to reassure children that they're full of potential. The single message that children want to get every day is that they're full of potential. And that potential, you know, could be in the physical side or both, in the mental or any other area. But at least that they haven't themselves condemned. So for me, coaching is untapping and developing human potential. Of course, for myself, it's untapping it towards Gaelic games. <clears throat> and, and and in that then we develop all the all the different aspects of the human being the physical side the emotional side the mental side um the, the you know the aesthetic side you know when sport loses its aesthetic it has lost its appeal for children and i suppose that was the glory this year of the hurling the aesthetic was so high that it brought a new audience to itself along with the traditional audience. So developing human potential, uh, equality for boys and girls, I think that's a massive thing. And then at the next level, um, enabling mammies and daddies uh, to coach themselves because they might say, I never played, but they're perfectly capable of coaching. And uh, that is what I spent my last maybe 20 years full-time at. How, as a coach then, can we start getting kids to realize their potential or to actually believe that they can realize their potential yeah well i base most of my stuff now for children on the primary school curriculum the agility balance and coordination developing the agility in children is such a magnificent thing it's only being understood now the effect of the body on the mind and the effect of the mind on the body and that they being a unit ultimately so agility and balance coordination running and jumping and throwing uh, catching and passing and striking, taking nothing for granted. Um, modern children aren't able to throw by nature because it's forbidden to throw anything. So they're not able to throw. Modern children aren't able to run unless somebody gives them the opportunity. And, um, you know, too many schools have a no-run policy. And how are children going to run unless, unless they're allowed to run, first of all, but unless they're trained I mean, children are trained how to read and write very meticulously. But the other side is taken for granted that you should be naturally able to run or naturally able to walk and naturally able to throw and naturally able to catch. And if you take a child, an average child in a schoolyard 
And supposing you're up around fourth or fifth class and you can't catch the ball. Sure, there's an apartheid comes in immediately. That child will never get a pass because the other child won't trust them to catch the ball and they'll lose the game. So they get shoved aside. In every schoolyard in Ireland, they get pushed aside. And I was in 1,500 schools. I know the scene there. The children that have already decided they're no good or the children that have been shoved aside because of the competitive few who dominate the schoolyard. So that's where we we have a massive role to play in the future. So what you're referring to there is the fundamental movement skills, I think, and I suppose there is a big common misconception out there that we just develop these naturally. Yeah. We don't. Yeah. Like and did. people don't understand fundamental. Fundamental is the stuff that cannot be done without. So you can't do without oxygen for maybe more than 30 seconds or water. And fundamental movement skills are the movements that cannot be done without. We cannot live our full life without these movements. And I think if teachers and coaches got a grasp of that, that this, the fundamental word, sometimes, it's, sometimes they say basic, but basic is a kind of a downgrading word that is below our dignity to do stuff. But if we fully understood what fundamental is, the child's human right to be able to learn how to catch a ball, now, the world opens out to me if I can catch a ball, if I can strike a ball, kick a ball, or if I can run quickly enough to get to the ball. The world opens up for me. And my own self-image is enhanced. But without a deep understanding of the fundamental, the word fundamental, um, I think that I'm, a, I, you know, I'm giving the child a privilege instead of a human right. And that's a massive shift in our thinking. The child has a, has a divine right to these uh, skills. And, and people think, as you said, people think they should be able to do them naturally. Well, nobody does anything naturally. Yeah, it's a very interesting to say about the human right. I, I know Wales, I think, are the first country to protect the child's right to play. Yeah. And they've brought in laws that local authorities should provide yeah. opportunities for play in areas and resources. What you're talking about in terms of how they perceive the child perceives themselves, that perceived competence. So, in my experience, you get a four or five year old, and they they will take on the world. They will take on. So, what's happening between the five and the eight that they're losing that that picture of themselves as the king of the world that they take yeah. anything on? Well, I I would I would just be studying that area full time now because that's the gap that's there. This this fantastic and potential in juniors and senior infants as you said take on anything they'll take on kicking and they'll take on catching and they're able to deal with failure because they know there's millions of failures they understand that but when they come down to seven or eight failure failure is a more serious thing it seems that we're kind of self-conscious now whereas at four we're not that conscious and we run up to kick a ball and we fall over and it's a laugh and it's a joke but at eight, that's not a laugh and a joke. That's a serious condemnation of myself. So we have little windows of opportunity between four and seven. That is juniors, seniors and first class. Now, in, in a lot of the GA clubs now, we have nursery programs. Unfortunately, the people in the aren't all trained sufficiently to understand that. And they might be four or five years ahead of the children's age of development. This is, this is a concern for me. They're attempting to do stuff that the child is not capable of, and the net result is the child feels a failure. Where if we're, if we're at developmental stages, the child never feels a failure. They feel this is a fair challenge. It's going to take me a little while to learn it, but I will get it. And if I can catch the ball, um, you know, how many, how many thousands of miscatches does it take to learn the catching mechanism when the eyes and the brain and the hands are coming at the right time. I mean, every child will flap at the ball, but they're not flapping at the right time. Then if the ball hits them, then from there on, their eyes are shut. So you need good people who understand child development stages. And that, 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 that to me is where we will go. We'll get the steps right. We know the content. We haven't stepped it fully yet. Yeah, so it's quite interesting to me that there, the way you were talking about the fundamental movement skills and then you said, and obviously in the GAA we have nursery programs, but I suppose what a lot of people maybe miss is that the fundamental movement skills 
are universal. It doesn't matter what sport or what activity. The research now would show that those who have a better proficiency and a better self-image of themselves at that age are actually way more physically active through life. Yeah. So it fits into this sort of physical literacy model. Yeah. Is that something that you think you see? You, do you I'm, see I'm, that I'm, out there? I'm, You're doing I'm a really long time. I'm really certain about that, and I, I'm going to spend every moment of my life now uh, promoting this among coaches and in real schools as well, so that the child's um, self-image is enhanced. I mean, the child should feel good about themselves. And if I go into my school, which I do every Tuesday, and I take the juniors and seniors, and we're doing our fundamental movement skills, and they're so happy doing it. But up in fifth and sixth class, where the boys and girls are playing under 14 hurling at a competitive level, they're so happy doing the fundamental movement skills. In other words, they recognise that somebody's allowing them to be the child that they are. And they're not mocking adult competition. They're able for that uh, in a certain circumstance. But they know the other stuff is their, is their bread and butter. This is what's... And now they have success. And they can have endless successes. In the 40 minutes of P that I will do, so I have a 40-minute P class. I'll hope that the children are active for 37 minutes of the 40. Whereas if you, if you have a match of 40 minutes, how active are you for that 40 minutes? You might get 10 or 12 minutes of activity if you're a good player. So what, what they're seeing is, and they're very aware of now the cardiovascular thing, that they know that when they work hard and sweat, they're improving their own heart and their own lung capacity. But they also know they're tidier on their feet. When the matches come, they're better in the sidestep. They're better at avoiding the, the hit or the tackle. And it's giving them deep confidence, not pseudo-confidence or pretending they're adults. So the fundamentalists at every age will stand to them. And I know well when the FAI bring back the, the people from all over England for the matches, they're going to spend the first day on fundamental movement skills in and out through their cones, in and out through their poles, in and out through their ladders. That's what they will be doing to settle them back before they get into the head area of tactics and so on. So th th this is where the thing will go. And the best players in the world, you can name any sport in the world. You can you go to Messi, you can go to across the rugby world, soccer world, basketball world. They're the ones with the good feet. They're the ones with the fundamental movement skills. And without the fundamental movement skills, you cannot add on the others. Yeah, I, I do want to pick on a point you said there. You talked about the kids, your junior and senior infants being aware of their heart and, and the lung capacity and stuff like that. Now, that's the sort of the other piece for the physical literacy, that knowledge and understanding of movement and physical activity. And like it all ties together. If you're competent in doing something, you'll go out and do it or you'll try new things. If you're motivated or sorry, if you understand that being active is good for your heart, you can be more motivated to go out and be active and it yeah, all sort of yeah. ties in. That is them, themselves. It's about themselves yeah. and their own body. I'm sure everybody's interested in their own body. So what you're talking about was giving the kids that sort of autonomy at that such a young exactly. age. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Developing human potential, the potential to be aware of themselves and what's good for them. And that leads into nutrition then and good habits of eating and, and the school then be so supportive. They have good lunch policies and the children are drink water and you know they do get a treat of course they do now and again but it's all managed and, and limited and now the children are feeling well and they have more capacity and are able to get more done in the same time therefore there's more enjoyment there's more thrill they can run faster for longer they can jump higher and jump longer catch the ball more more clearly you know so we do a thing there about throwing maybe we say it was 20 children in class and they have a nice light a light ball and there's a basketball hoop and they all get 10 throws and they tell me their score but the fun and the enjoyment gets, they might get a zero but everybody got 10 throws at the same time they're not waiting in a big long queue everybody has a ball and they're around the key and they're all they throw and they catch and they throw and they catch and they're developing things you know and in the juniors, then we run a big circle and they all throw the ball up in the sky and they have to catch another ball, not their own. So they're becoming aware of, you know, releasing the ball to somebody else's care, whereas a junior would want their own ball and they'd want to be minding it because it's my ball, as against when you go play games, it's everybody's ball. So all these things of self-awareness. And I do ask them to put their hand on their heart and see how it's racing. And they tell me, oh, oh it's racing, it's bursting. 
I say, how many seconds will we need now for that to calm down? And in 10 or 15 seconds, we'll go again. So they are becoming aware. Yeah, I, I, just one real practical takeaway from that. Like you mentioned there that they all have a ball and they all, there are no cues and stuff like that. I think that's something that no matter how many times you hear it, it's not enough because if you're giving a, a, a kid a five or six a ball to work out with themselves, you're, as you said, you're giving them that ownership to reach their potential. And I think that coaches, it's a massive, massive learning to step for them that they need to do that. Uh, someone else in the show said that as well, that they do at a professional soccer club, that they work on the first 40 minutes is a ball per person and work on the basic skills. Well, if they're going to connect, which, the, which is the whole thing. I mean, the idea of us is helping people to connect to themselves. And if they connect to themselves, the world has no problem. We won't have any antisocial behaviour if everybody's connected to themselves. That, that's what sport is for. Help us to be better people. Yeah. So you've arrived at this sort of, this is your mission now, as you say. Yeah. This is what you want to do. Yeah. Obviously, you wouldn't have started off like that. Your coaching philosophy has probably changed and evolved throughout. Could you maybe... Yeah, maybe it is coming full cycle. When I was a child, um, the game was not organised for children. The first competition was 15 years of age when I was a child. It's an interesting thing now. And everybody played in their little local area, maybe six or eight houses of children would come together in somebody's field. And we played with no supervision of any adult. And eventually then, when you came to 14 or 15, you went and played officially. But that was it. We had, what, eight or ten years there where we were self-regulated. Biggest single problem would have been a ball. Who would have a ball? <laughs> it's hard to say that now. We're talking about a ball per person. We were talking about who would have a ball that and evening. And who'd be going home with the ball when and it was bring it back. And would they be coming back the next day? Um, and that happened mostly. And then families were bigger and you played in the family as well. But the official world didn't come in until you were quite quite big. Um, one of the big things that really um, maybe affected me, how to, how to communicate with children as against communicating with adults. So a beautiful book there that um, I think is really important is how to talk to kids so they will listen and how to listen to kids so they will talk. Now, you have everything in the world in that. Now, this book is the most modern book that you could find, and it's printed 50 years. It's written for now. So if I'm helping a teacher or a parent how to listen, how to talk to children so they will listen, which is every adult's wish in the world, yeah? yeah. But also how to listen to children so they will talk. So when I want feedback from the children now, they will tell me. We want to do more of this. We need more of that. Can we do this one? Can we do that one? Because they know I'll be paying attention. And then they also tell me, can we move on? You see, and I won't be offended because my business is that they would talk to me. And we're not as good as catching as we'd like to be. Can we do more catching? Can we do more kicking? Can we do more throwing? Can we throw it over the fence? You know, because we have a beautiful fence in the yard which divides two yards. And the little ones can throw the ball over the fence and the other child to catch it. So they have to get it up. They have to get another trajectory because of the barrier, which is a natural thing there we, that we use. So that creates an idea of space and distance. But the ball is light, and if it pops in their head, it's a laugh. But little things like that, where they have to work out how far back to stand from it or how near to stand from it, how low to hold it so that it goes over. So all these things cause the, the little brain to solve the problem. That's, again, it's back to the autonomy that you're talking yeah, about right. in terms yeah. of them wanting to progress. Yeah. So how do you bring that into other elements of coaching when you're dealing with maybe some sport-specific stuff? Uh, right. So we'll take striking and hurling, which is maybe like hitting a golf ball or hitting a tennis ball. It must be the, it must be the greatest desire in anybody who wants to play a ball sport. Can I hit it? Will you let me hit it? Will you show me how to hit it? Because when you can hit it, your motivation has gone through the roof. So imagine you went out playing golf and nobody would let you hit the ball. Or if you went playing tennis and nobody would let you hit the ball, surely you couldn't say that you were that much into it. You're into control or something. Mm -hmm. So a girl that wants to play camogie wants to strike the ball and a boy wants to strike the ball. And if they're able to strike the ball, well, you needn't worry any further. They're going to be striking the ball at every opportunity. I was coming in along one day into Crow Park down by Ballymon and I heard this sound. I said, that's an unusual sound 
was really rhythmic. I said, oh my God, there's only one thing could make that. There's somebody hurling a ball against the steel door. And down I come along and I spot my man at nine o'clock in the morning. One of the satantabies, I suppose, hammering away to his full content. He happy as Larry, the world meant nothing to him. He was hurling and in his zone. So once you teach a person to be able to strike a ball, I mean, the world is theirs then, you know. But uh, until that time, you see, the autonomy come. You see, the, I have a responsibility to shorten the learning period because we we can't spend 10 years now trying to learn how to hit a slitter. Yeah, so I suppose that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, how do we you can't spend that? 10 years at that. So if I do a really good fundamentals movement program, a good catching program and a good throwing program, I, I have really, I'm almost there. But supposing I didn't do any of that. Now I'm asking the child to jump 10 steps on the stairs in one go. Now, maybe one child is able to jump 10 steps in the stairs, but the majority are falling down. So I have to be systematic. Fundamental movement schools, agility, balance, coordination, running, jumping, throwing, catching, passing, kicking, and striking is number 10 of the 10. But supposing I didn't do my 10 steps, haven't I let down the child? It's like asking the child coming to school, here, read that book, join your infants, read the book. Now, you want you well able to read your four. Well, the child is going to have an utter failure, isn't it? So the, the steps are really important to me. And then within the actual skill itself, then, look, I've seen you coach and, uh, hundreds of times probably. You break that skill down then within within the skill itself. So you do your steps, your fundamentals, but then how would you break? So let's take this, keep going with the strike. Break that down for us there for well, any coach had, listening. <clears throat> we had a long time before we could find a step within the step. And until we devised the hurling pole, or the rope, we were asking children to jump too far. So like a lot of things in the world, DeLorean now comes into my mind, uh, the great car designer who took out uh, so many moving parts in cars that we all, the whole car industry has benefited from him. He didn't finish up that well, but he, he, he was a genius in that he took out. And the more moving parts we can take out, then the better. So if I can stabilize the ball, then the child can get a hone in on the ball. But if the ball is moving, it debilitates the child. So they have it now in the five-star five challenge where the ball is on a tee. So I just devised the, the hurling pole where the slitter is on the end of the pole and the child, the adult holds it where the child needs it. And all of a sudden, the child has no fear of missing and the swing begins to come. And once the swing then is honed and once that's um, automated, then they have the confidence to drop the ball or at least hit a moving ball. But, but, but something deep has happened inside. I am able. I am capable. I'm well able to do this. So you're basically providing them with an opportunity to succeed. Yeah, yeah. Stepping that Find up. Find as little. many uh, pieces of equipment that will shorten the journey for the child. When I started teaching, I was perfectly happy that children were able to strike the ball in fifth class. Right? So that's what? That's seven years in school. Perfectly, I was perfectly happy. Now there's children coming to school. There's children coming to school able to strike the ball before they come into junior infants. Things have come right back along the line. Now, I might go to school where there's no hurling and the children in sixth class can't strike the ball and they're mad to strike the ball. So I set up my ropes and they get their chance to swing without the fear of failure. And in 20 minutes, some of them will be striking the ball. So I think now, I often say this to people, if a child came in to me from Syria, right, first day in, in school, and he's in from Syria, and he has no language, and I have no language for him, I would consider myself a failure if I wasn't able to teach him to strike the ball in 10 minutes, as against 10 years when I was young. So that's a big change in the world. Because you don't have to be Irish, or you don't have to be from Tipperary, or you don't have to be anything to do a skill Everybody's same as could you teach a child to hammer a nail into a bit of timber? Of course you could, couldn't you? Mm -hmm. But why build up something silly about one of our national traditions? Why build up all these phobias about it, that you have to be from here and you have to be this and you have any boy or girl can learn to do it, and once they learn, they're kind of addicted to it for the rest of their lives. 
what you're talking about is providing, let's say, like I know in coach research and stuff, they talk about providing that scaffolding. So you build up step by step by step by step and so that if they do fail, it's only a little bit. They know they have that base underneath. Is it too late, though, if you go in at 13, 14 and, and as a coach and you haven't done these things already? Can you? Yeah. Can you pull it back? Yeah. <laughs> I, I got an opportunity to go to America, got an invitation to go to Seattle. And of course, America is a very different place from here. They aren't, age doesn't really come into it in America. So we're over there with Terry Lynch, my friend over there, drove me down to uh, Portland, Oregon. As it happens now, my daughter is li- now living in Portland, Oregon. She wasn't there that time, but she is there now. So anyway, um, all the people interested in Gaelic games come into a, um, an astroturf area and uh, they're all mad to strike the ball. That's what they want. And I have lots of slitters and we get going so we're finishing up anyway and there's people there of every age from 80 downwards to 15 so I said to the 15 year old boy if um, if all the boys in Seattle of 15 knew that knew about this hurling how many of them would be playing he said to be in tens of thousands if they knew about it he didn't think he just said it out of his gut he said to be in tens of thousands because this is the best game in the world he said that was his introduction to hurling. He was now able to strike the ball. But there was this older man, anyway, I suppose he was 65 or 66, long there. He said, I'm a professor of education. I started hurling this year, he said. So here's a man of 65, professor of education, wanted to help to train coaches mostly, but wanted to play himself as well. And he learned to strike the ball, right? Uh, in that session at 65. So um, the thing about the American kids, they would have played baseball, they would have played basketball, they would have, they, they, they weren't starting at zero, if you know what I mean. So they had the basics, they, the fundamentals. They, they, they had something going. And anybody that played any sport, that helps the other sport because some level of coordination is required there. But they, what, they, what they really do need is somebody understands maybe to divide it into four or five steps and take a bit, a small bit of time. Step one, have we got step one? Yeah. Have we grip and swing? Yeah, we have grip and swing. Don't worry about the ball. Have we grip and swing? Swing away. Have we grip and swing? Have grip and swing. I have it, yeah. Okay. Then introduce maybe a bigger ball, a football or something, that they actually make a contact. So they, hardly, they could hardly fail. And then they'll ask you, can I throw it up and hit it? And you say, yeah, when you're ready, up you go. And, you know? And the opportunity for success there you see, again. There you the have, board. there you have me going to America to be taught by a professor of education. That why was why was I so ageist in myself? He didn't say that, but I mean I got it. Why am I saying that he's too old to play hurling? What's wrong with us in Ireland that we have to stop people at thirty? And the media writing now for every day, all oh, these lads are getting old. They're nearly thirty now. They must stop. They must consider stopping. Are they turning into grandfathers at thirty or something? <laughs> the, the, the stupidity of it, and it's against everybody. It's against everybody. There should be loads of. Um, opportunity to play at any age you know uh, I see George Uia is lining out for <laughs> the, uh, he's, he's Libya? president Libya or something like that yeah uh, we he's should the president and and he's 50 and that's the spirit of it that people should be playing for the enjoyment of it you see competition is going to destroy us in every single way eventually because the, the sport is about cooperation it was built on cooperation. The ball is between the 15 of us. We share it out to each other. Yeah. But the other side has crept in and, and, and it's now coming down the line. People want blitzes at sixes now. They want competition for sixes, imagine. I mean, the thinking behind that is, is so crazy. It's cooperation that we need to live in a society where we all cooperate with each other. So that, let's say, competitive thing that in theory is only supposed to come in at 13, 14, 15 is there a place for that or are you saying that we should be we're naturally competitive yeah okay we're not naturally cooperative so if the game is teaching children to cooperate then you can play a game at any age but if, if the game is teaching you to be selfish and to mean and to glory in your own glory and forget about everybody else and Jimmy's taking the freeze and the sidelines and the puck outs and he's standing goals for the penalties well where are we now we had cases recently where uh, under, under 11 where under 12 where subs have to come on at half time and 
coaches are taking off their players and giving them a new jersey and putting it back on the same players just to just to deceive the situation and forgetting about the humanity of the other child and this is at 12 not 32 so we have a lot of work to do to, to, to go back to Michael Cusick and find where we were founded we were, we were founded for a different purpose altogether we were founded that this would do us good and hurling has and football have stood as well but uh, as we get more and more competitive, we get more and more exclusive and more and more exclusive. And you see now how inter-county exclusive is killing. So 2% play inter-county or 1% play inter-county, how it's killing the 99%. We have to find a model for the 99% because they, that ultra-competitive thing will destroy everything in the long run. So is... Are you like I was going to ask you about what yeah. challenges do we face in coaching in Ireland and do you think is that competitiveness one of the, the main ones? Yeah, we forget what it's for. It's for the well-being and the health of people and communities. So if we have a little hurling club down in Drum and Inch, it's for the well-being and, and, and the camaraderie and the togetherness of the people to do something for other people. It's a spiritual thing. If, if I'm a coach, that's a spiritual thing. I'm doing something for other people. And if, play, if, play, if a player has the ball and he gives it to another player, that's a spiritual act. He doesn't want to give away the ball. He's doing it because it's a good thing to do. Nobody wants to give away the ball. Well, that wouldn't be natural in you. But if we create the right environment, everybody will pass the ball to each other. And then we say the great Kilkenny team was absolutely built on that. They okay. kept putting the ball to the person in a better position. The greatest soccer teams in the world, they give the ball to Petrosin. And if they get selfish and mean, the system breaks down. So you mentioned the Kilkenny team and yeah. best soccer teams and stuff like that. So how do we create that environment as a coach? Like, so if someone's listening here now and they want to do that, how do they do that? What's well, the first step? Define your philosophy is what you're about. What are we about? We're about equality. We're about respect. We're about pride in our community, pride in ourselves. So if I'm under under 12s and the spirit of the GA says, anybody that's here plays half the match. So I can start any 12 I like, but the rest are coming on at half time. Now that's the spirit of the GA. Fairness to everybody. Everybody gets a go. They're called go games. Everybody gets a go. But my ego rises up and I want to win this match because it will reflect well on myself. And I'll take off Tommy and Johnny and then give them a new jersey. What about these six children here? They have been defrauded and cheated by adults. They've been cheated by society. Out of their birthright to play. So we just all have to understand what we're about. And uh, primary school is a wonderful, wonderful place where people are in their local community. They're within a mile or two of home. and, And that should be a protected area at that age. When they're bigger and go off to secondary school, they're bigger, they're older, they're into a a different mix of people, people from different parishes, and, 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 and it's a whole different mix. But for that early age of life, it must be protected. There must, society must come around these and give them the very best experience because that will stand them wherever they live, whether they live in Australia or America. It won't matter one bit. If they're grounded and if their roots are gone down and if they belong to a caring community, they'll grow up to be caring people themselves. And I know the people around us that have gone to Australia, they weren't in Australia a day where they either started a GA club or joined a GA club. Same in America, the same in Europe, all over the place. They're starting up GA clubs because they were grounded and because they found their roots there. And the same is happening in Dublin. People are rushing into the clubs now in thousands that we did never see before because they can find their roots and they have their village in the city. That's the key to the whole thing, that people have their village no matter where they live. And the GA can do that very well. And the local school and the GA combining together is the very best combination that a child would ever want. And to make sure that boy and girl are treated the same. We have that challenge still. Yeah, I think it's a great point in terms of the, the, the village and the city. Like, I'm from Dublin and my own club in the Fene, but it, it feels to me like it, that's my community. That's your community. You know, yeah. and I think people outside, maybe GA clubs, don't they don't get that or they don't see the sense of it or they don't see how I feel so that it's so important to me yeah and I think that's something that the GAA as you said does extremely well that's well. our strength and what long as, we, as long as we don't destroy it with over competitiveness and um, there's so many good people 
coaching and things, so many good influences, but I'd be very confident about the future that we protect that early period, protect it at all costs from, from, from people that would have, you know, the big danger is parents coming back in from playing, finishing up at 36 or 7 in ultra-competitive, coming back in with the under-sixes. And that ultra-competitive, I mean, it was the same myself. I was playing for Tipperary, hurling and football, go back into school, doing P with junior infants the following morning. So, and I, I may still be in that, but the junior infants taught me pretty quickly. Yeah. You know? Yeah, they can humble Ooh. any man. Yeah, they don't <laughs> care whether you play for Tipperary or Ireland or Australia. They don't give a damn. So what are you doing for us? Yeah. So, uh, in terms of, do you think is there any other challenges that face Ireland in coaching as, as a whole, as in, like there's loads of coach education uh, and education opportunities out there, but can you see any other challenges? Yeah, we, we, we have, and, and they're being identified slowly. And I just brought uh, this book along with me there from Dr. Harry Barry. Dr. Harry Barry and Enda Murphy now. And the new um, well-being programs in the secondary school, which all coaches need to take home and read. They're brilliantly put together, and I suppose maybe some of these are the authors. The mental health issue now is as big an issue maybe as maybe food was in, after the famine or uh, employment was in the 30s or 50s. It's, it's, it's a thing that has arisen in society because of where we live. And anybody can be afflicted. It doesn't matter how well off you are or how n- or not well off you are. And if, the, if, if we, from the early stages, you know, convince that child of their, of their, that they're full of potential and then give them an outlet for physical activity in a safe place a mile away from home. We can do a lot to counter the, the mental illness problem that has befallen Ireland of very recent years. You know, before there was one per thousand or something or one per 500 and now it's anybody. We all have friends that have gone down with depression for no apparent reason. They had enough food, they had enough clothes, they had good employment, but something is something has befallen the nation. And maybe it's all over the Western world. It could be that the, the life we're living isn't freeing us enough. And I think sport is the perfect counter, you know, the counter, the antidote to it. Um, why is that? Has that gone back to what you said earlier, the mind-body connection? You see, the two ideas, the idea of perfection and perfectionism um, that's utterly destructive of human beings, boy or girl. So if that got into your head that you had to be perfect, you, you wouldn't be long going down because you'd fail so often. Whereas sport, like you go back to the child, the infant, the infant is trying to run and they fall and they get up and they laugh and they run again and they fall and they laugh. The two-year-old trying to learn to walk he flops on the bottom and laughs about the good of it because, you know, that's the way we learn to walk. Now, if I'm trying to catch a ball, I'm going to fail thousands of times to catch the ball. I'm building up resilience. That this is how we learn everything. There's nobody going to be anywhere near perfect. We're going to fail thousands of times. And that's perfectly grand. And failure is fully acceptable. I mean, Henry Shefflin, Mr. Free, did the, did the sky fall in? The sky didn't fall in because Messi missed the penalty. People miss... It's the ne- now, sport is the only way that will teach you this resilience. You fall and you get up and your shins are dirty. And if I had my way now, I'd make sure everybody, every child in the country goes out in muddy fields in their shorts and get dirty and roll and roll and they'd get up out of the muck happy. And they'd wash themselves and they'd be perfectly clean and, and they'd smell fine again. But the resilience that they need cannot be got from being always in clean clothes and always have everything prepared because by 19 they won't be ready for anything so sport now is to me I mean no matter who you are now you can't provide work opportunity for children most houses could not devise a job for the children you know once upon a time maybe most people lived in rural Ireland and there was jobs there aren't jobs now you couldn't invent them you know so the resilience that we need as human beings to come back from a little you know small things so I suppose somebody uh, sent a text around about me that I wasn't a good person or something. Well, if I haven't got resilience in me, I'm gone down on that one score, haven't I? And the world will knock us back every day. But if, if, we, if we overcome the idea of perfectionism, 
then we have a shield against that. I never said I was perfect. I, d I didn't expect them. I, I don't want to be perfect. I nothing about me is perfect. So I can't fail, really. So sport, I think, now is really... The trouble is, sport is so exclusive that 60% of the people are out before they get going. There's our problem with sport. We have made it exclusive when it's absolute necessity for everybody to play sport, to fall and get up and to kick it wide and to hit it wide and to miss a goal in front of the goal and laugh at it and get over it and have another goal and miss again and have another goal. Michael, um, the great basketball player, Michael Jordan, missed a thousand free throws in professional basketball. Nobody on him. In all the time in the world to throw it. He missed a thousand key throws and he always says it. That's, that's what kept him sane because he was close to, in other ways, he was close to perfection. But no matter how much he trained and no matter how much, and that was the makings of him in the end. That's how he learned to become a super basketball player, that he needed other people. He couldn't do it on his own. And it wasn't until he got the great coach, Phil Jackson, it wasn't until he got the great coach, Phil Jackson, that he understood his role in the world. Now, oh, he had enormous talent. He had enormous talent. But now you go read his book, you'll find out it was all for nothing until he got a great coach who began to teach him about his place in the world. Because he couldn't get it as an individual, naturally. So that's where coaching comes in. We, from my point of view, everybody needs a coach. And every coach needs a coach. Every player, every child needs a coach. Now, lucky enough, if that coach, if that uh, person is their teacher if that person is already in their club and they're in the club but for lots of people you know the world is exclusive and maybe mommy and daddy haven't enough interest to take me down to the club but they're all in school and if we got our act together with the department of health and the department of education the department of sport and maybe the department of justice if you know what i mean if we got those four bodies together we could solve this problem in a decade no bother I just want to go back to the, and I know you, you mentioned about the mental health, the mental health and stuff like that. But to a coach that might be listening here now, they might be going, "Oh, Jenny, I'm am I responsible now for the physical activity element, the the fitness element, and now is that mental health? Is that a, are we putting too much onus on that for the coaches no, in a volunteer capacity? No, we're not. No, because we'll break it down like striking the ball. We'll break it down for them. Okay, so activity is normal for children. A ball, to have a ball our, our GA programme now is for the young ones is have a ball I mean that says it all have a ball isn't it physical ball but having a ball we're having fun we're using our bodies in all different kinds of ways we're falling and getting up we're throwing and catching we're kicking when we're ready and we're playing away to our heart's content while we're a certain age and when we're ready for the next phase we're going up to the next phase and the first phase is 4 to 6 and the next phase is 6 to 8 and as we go up along then we meet children with special needs who will need the four to six program when they're eight to ten and they know that and we know that and they're perfectly happy and that's around so actually we're not making the world harder for coaches we're making it easier for them we're taking the weight off their shoulders because we'll do the research we'll provide the what you're familiar with simon sinek with the three circles the what and the how and the why and it's not what you do that matters it's not what you do that switches the child on. It's why you're doing it. So the child very quickly interprets why you're in the school. They know perfectly well. You mightn't be able to fully announce it, but they could. They know why you're there. You're there because you're into power and you want to power over somebody, or you're there because you love children and you love GA and because you want to give them a good time a half an hour a week or two half hours a week. And they, I mean, children know who loves them and they know who don't love them. They don't have to be told and they know who's good for them. And uh, emotional resilience. This is a book now on form, uh, Jim Lohr and Tony Schwartz, two great people, and they talk about the energy that we bring, the emotional energy, the physical energy, uh, the mental energy that we bring, the psychological energy that we bring to it. And I think that's where kids um, can interpret. So if I bring the correct energy to the group, they know that, and therefore they thrive. And if I bring a negative energy or a corrective or a punitive energy, they know that too. So if I can relax the coaches down, they're perfectly capable of coaching eight-year-olds. You're perfectly capable. This is what you have to do. You can do it a thousand ways, but this is what you, they need to do for this period. 
and leave the rest to the next period and leave the rest to the next period. But don't be doing what you saw on television on Sunday. And don't be expecting the eight-year-old to score running down the wing. I don't expect him to be a Kieran Kilkenny. You see, you're, you've missed the point. How can I translate what Kieran Kilkenny did down to a six-year-old? So could they run with the ball in their hands and forget about the solo and just imitate the swerving movement and the ball in their hand? Now they feel the same feeling. They have the same feeling, but you didn't make them demean them by adding in the responsibilities. That's what we do with small children. And then they feel wonderful about themselves. And then they'll all join the J-Club or they'll all join some sport. The great crippler now is that so many are not joining any sport. That's the crippler in Ireland. If we could get them away from the from the screens into reality of their bodies, the realities of their bodies, which, you know, I, I think we haven't really got to grips with it. That how good the body is and how wonderful the body is. And when the body is treated right, how much it rewards us. It will give us our, the body will give us our mental health. If we exercise the body well, it will give us mental health. We, we, we really haven't fully understood or we have been reluctant to give the body any credit. We, 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 want to, we, we kind of treat the body as a bad thing, a limiting thing. But children are not separated from their body at that age. You know, they get, they get a joy from jumping or skipping or, you know, anything like that. So we have a lot to learn ourselves, firstly. And <clears throat> people like you that are doing the research, that's crucial. It's crucial that you would do the hard research. On the emotional side, <coughs> sorry about this, on the emotional side, on, on the cognitive side, as the school has a cognitive place, a place of learning. So when they're doing P with me, they're learning. There's something going on in the learning sphere. And then you have the spiritual side, which means I'll pass the ball to you. Why will I pass the ball to you? Because I have empathy. You would like to have the ball. So the empathy means I recognize your need. I give it the ball. But I know that you'll give it back to me. And now we have a transaction goal. Yeah? So ball between two, sometimes it's better than a ball between one, sometimes a ball between three, and then we go back to the old days, ball between 30. There might be gain in it, there is gain in it, certainly at a certain age. You know, you have two minor teams out in the field, the ball between 30 is the way it is. Yeah. We've kind of come full circle in terms of going all the way back to the to the fundamentals and, and making the, 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 the child fulfil their potential. You've been around a long time now and doing this a long time. How is the health of coaching in Ireland at the moment, would you say? Excellent. Excellent. Um, now, I just take from my own experience uh, down at home in Tipperary. From last year on, we'll say, nobody now, no child or no adult, hears violent language anymore on the, from the sideline. Now, a lot of people have reported this to me because they've reckoned, what's causing this big shift? The violent language that was perfectly associated with Gaelic games and um, it's gone from the underage section now now if it happens once everybody's shocked and it's reported and some parent will confront that person and I heard recently of a young mother going up to a person, person who was having violent language and on her own she down faced him and he had to apologise and stop and that was off her own bat because she said this is not what I brought my child for. But it's so exceptional now. It's wonderful. So we have made a big impression. Uh, the big shift in my life, of course, when I went to coaching Ireland down in uh, UL to be trained as a tutor, that was my big fundamental shift. So um, we're 20 years of that now, and it's, it really has got down. More and more children are playing, but there's a lot of children that we would love to capture. Gaelic games this year with 100 and, what was it, 153,000 at cool camps. Well, we could take that to 200,000. That would bring in another 40, 50, 47,000 children, which would be significant. We need more clubs, of course. And uh, we do need the state, the state to come in. The four um, departments really need to come together for the sake of the children uh, and for the sake of the adult population in 20 and 30 years' time. The health of the children now will be the health of the adult population then. And um, I mean, everything is set. In the, the knowledge that we have is there. The what is there. The how, you know, we have good facilities now 
In every parish now we have good facilities to a point. Uh, coming in along listening to the news, only 20% of our national schools have a PE facility. Now that's, that needs tackling. It is easy to say everybody should do PE and every child should get an hour a week. And from here on, for, I'll say from, certainly from the 1st of November or to the 1st of March, there's no guarantee that that child will get out to play. So that's where, <clears throat> that's where we need to go. Um, the knowledge is there. There are more and more and more people coming to coaching courses for training. Um, I'll be doing a coaching course now in a club in Dublin very soon, and there'll be at least two professors there. So we're, there'll be a judge there, there'll be solicitors, accountants, and there'll be people who are unemployed. So we're beginning to reach all ends for the good of and the health of the nation. The reason we were founded was for the health of the nation. Now, I'm not excluding FAI or IRFU or tennis. They're all, they're all in the mix here. Anybody that has children playing is in the mix here for the good of the country. And that's really our big aim. But the J was founded for the good of the country, simply. Sometimes people think it's for one parish to beat another or one county to build a, beat another. Yeah, I think it's a it's an important reminder of what we're actually doing. And yeah, it, what we're about. Yeah. yeah, we've a few standard questions that we ask yes. everyone towards the end. Yes. What's the term successful coach mean to you? If we look at it long term, fr from me now, a successful coach, people that play under successful coaches will immediately coach themselves. Something bigger than th th is a bigger scene. So. Um, it's, it, it's them realising maybe, the children or the players realising that somebody enabled them to achieve their potential that they wouldn't have otherwise. They put them on an avenue that gave them great joy that they wouldn't otherwise have got on. And then in turn they will, they will repay society by doing that. You find that inevitable. Now, I'm coaching now 50 years next year. So I have 50 years to look back. My friend Eamon Ryan is coaching for maybe 56 or 7 years. And he, he tells the same tale. You know, that um, it, it, what we do, if, 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 if we're doing uh, the human side of it right, you're, you're fulfilling people's lives. They become better parents. The first of all is they become better parents, the people that come on coaching courses. They, they, they see their children differently. <clears throat> you know, they pull off a few layers of paint that was imposed on them by society and by neighbours and so on and become themselves. And I suppose... We'll say the likes of Jim Gavin that was releasing the potential in the people to be themselves, to be the best they can be. I think that's a lovely thing, to be the best that they can be. That's really the ultimate in coaching, to be the best that can be. And if you win, you win, and if you don't win, you don't win. But if uh, under 14 C team, you know, and then for them to enjoy themselves and play their all their games and get a go, that's for me successful coaching. I wouldn't be over worried about medals. They come sometimes when you have great talent and a set of circumstances comes together. I think, now this is a statistic from nature. The shark and the tiger and the eagle, they're successful 5% of their hunts. Nature has decided that 5% keeps them perfect keeps them sharp and keeps them fit and gives them enough food to sustain it. Less than 5%, they could die of starvation. But they hunt 19 times, 19 hunts to get one food. Nature has it designed that way. Most players will tell you that's what they win in their careers. Then you get a Dublin and a Kilkenny who throw that askew, and that means a Westmead or a Longford or an Offaly or Tipperary football are, are down to 0%. But the law of nature is that 5% Success is plenty for all of nature and all of us humans. 5% is plenty to keep us um, hungry for more and keep us active and fulfill all our needs. So the thinking that people thinking they want to win all the time, it's a crazy idea because it doesn't happen anyway. It can't happen anyway, no matter who you are. So I think um, if people got that idea, you'll win sometimes and you won't win most of the time. But did you play well and did you play... Um, for the right reasons and did you enjoy yourself when you were playing or did you miss the whole lot and did you wake up at 30 having said what was I at it's interesting because uh, Liam Moggan was on the first episode and he talked about 
the massive success that he's had and he said the shine goes away very quickly and some of the stuff that gives him the most satisfaction is seeing someone who lives close to him that he used to teach in school and it still goes out for his run at lunchtime yeah, and stuff of course um, a longer term view a more a more uh, humanistic view of it yeah um, you mentioned a couple of books or three books there that, and we will post the, the names of them up on the Twitter uh, page Successful Coaching by Rainer Martins I suppose was the one that really um, shifted me fully um, the second version particularly that's a very uh, very popular book on this show yeah it, it, it really gets us and then we can go back to our particulars for our particular knowledge. And in hurling, Tony Wall's book on hurling was really significant to me because I was just beginning to play hurling when Tony Wall retired and Jimmy Dial retired. I was just beginning to come up to an adult. And they wrote a very influential... When, when there was no coaching material at all available to anybody, no matter how hungry you were, there was nothing available. And I see Paul Roos's book now published yesterday will be really intriguing to hurling people. But um, coaching is very new in Ireland. Um, when I was a young teacher, my cousins in America sent me a coaching book on basketball. And I suppose that really opened my mind to what coaching was rather than knowing that you played the game. So um, I, we were down in Athlone a few years ago and this lady came in with her child um, um, not Josephine now. Anyway, she's like that. Finishes Nina. She's from Nigeria and she was only in Ireland a year, but her child wanted to play. play. And I said to myself, um, if I want this to work now, uh, she will be striking the ball now in uh, within three minutes. So we were in a hall and there was a breast of a chimney there. And I said to myself, if she can strike the ball against the breast of the chimney now, the rest of the people will see how easy it is to teach a child a skill or teach... Uh, language. Now she had English enough, but um, w within uh, 90 seconds, she struck the ball with a hurley and hit the breast of the chimney, and then she repeated it, and then she repeated it within two minutes. Never having been at a hurling match, never been. So sometimes it's the block in myself that the person won't be able. Sure, everybody's full of potential. Everybody's full of potential. The wheelchair people are hurling now. Sure, before people wouldn't allow a wheelchair person. They wouldn't allow the thought. Stay in your wheelchair, be happy where you are. Putting limits on people forever. And so you're from County Loud, you can't hurl. So you're from County Mayo, you can't hurl. Putting limits like that on people. Now we have young Americans playing. Young Americans playing hurling. Never saw, don't know where Ireland is. They don't know, they don't know there is an Ireland, right? They don't know there is a GA, but somebody put a slitter and a hurl in their hand, gave them a couple of ins instructions, and away they went. And again, full full circle to about releasing potential for what releasing we started potential, with. Releasing potential, yeah. So, look, I don't want to keep you too much longer. You've co covered a lot of this already, but maybe in summary, what are your top tips for a developing coach? Yeah, if it was to say now what I really believe, let the child teach you. So I got a junior infant, which I did last Tuesday week, child in school for the first came to school on Monday I'm doing PE on Tuesday don't know the child don't know her name don't know her you know so I have to say now how will I know what she needs to know so I set down a few little cones and ask her to run down the passageway and she doesn't see the passageway so then I know she doesn't know anything about patterns she doesn't know so I get the senior infant to run down in front of her now she'll follow the senior infant down. And after one minute then, she's looking at me, I can do it. So the child is teaching me what stage they're at, if I'm sensitive enough. So I, I have to be sensitive now, watch the children. And of course, the great thing about the how to coach skills is, the first skill is build a rapport with the child. The second skill is to observe. The ability to observe. If Aidan O'Brien takes out his horse uh, t t today down in Cashel for a run around, he'll decide whether to pull him out of the race or leave him in the race on what he saw. But sometimes our Western minds get in front of our eyes. And the great American coaches teach us this. Phil Jackson was the greatest teacher. Coach with your eyes. And Brian Cody picked it up later on. If you're going well in training on Tuesday, you were on the team on Sunday. But the rest of us are caught in our minds. We have ideas and notions and we can't see. So the child of four, the child of eight, the child of 12, 
if I'm alert and alive, I'll know what she needs next. And I now tell everybody, let the child teach you. And if you become that humble, and if you become that aware, you'll be a brilliantly successful coach. But if you come in with big notions of that you're playing God here, well, don't go there. Paddy, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on. Thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for listening to The Coaching Bubble. We've reached the end of the series. I hope you've enjoyed and learned something from the series that you can take into your own coaching. I know I certainly have. It's been a fantastic experience. I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Noel Williams for the Camogie Association. Uh, he's taken to calling himself executive producer these days, but he's the one who does all the hard work in the background and makes the show possible. As always, any notes or books referenced in the show will be up on our Twitter page, at Bubble Coaching. You can follow us on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening. It really is appreciated. We hope to be back next year with a new series. Chat again soon.